as we read through the 22nd Psalm, I want to, to maybe give you a, a little bit of a, a, a caption for where we're going. And I, I, I said this last week. So the end of Luke chapter 24, there's this really interesting story where some people are walking along. They've just watched Jesus be crucified. And at, at a certain point, they were following Jesus, wanting to be like him and wanting to learn from him. But then all the people turned on him and he's crucified. And, and they're walking along and somebody comes along and it's Jesus. But they don't recognize him because they just, you know, usually when you watch somebody be killed, you don't start looking for them in certain places. So they're walking along, and for whatever reason, they don't recognize Jesus, and Jesus confronts them with this powerful truth. And he says, says again, remember, this is, this is, we love it when Jesus speaks this way. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what gets your attention, but when people start calling me names, I perk up my ears. And Jesus does this for people like me. He says, you foolish ones, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That, that resonates with me pretty deeply. Deeply, Was it not necessary? Because they're just shocked that Jesus has been crucified. He's been handed over. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he does something that, that it, I, I share with you um, a couple of Easter's ago. If, uh, one commentarian put it this way. It's like, it, he would trade all the books that exist, all the theology books that exist, to have access to the conversation that took place in this verse. He says, and in the beginning with Moses, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Moses and then even through the prophets of the Old Testament, he interpreted, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, what I would give to overhear that conversation. <laughs> Jesus to explain, no, this is what he was talking about. This is what we were, you're like even, you're right, even, I can picture, even in Leviticus, right? You're like, what? And he's like, no, you want to see holiness. You want to see the fulfillment of the law. You want to see holiness in, in true and perfect form. You look at me, you see me. I am the blameless, spotless one. I am the one set aside for this great purpose. And so my goal is, as we read Psalm 22, it's a, it's a longer psalm than what we've been reading and so the reading's about three to four minutes, so I know this is going to stretch your attention span, which is my goal. I want to do that. My goal in stretching your attention span is also to whet your appetite as we read the Psalms for the things that Jesus points to here. That you wouldn't just simply have a song that resonates in you deeply, but you would have a song that for us is fulfilled finally in Jesus. So beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 22. The caption tells us this is to the choir master. Remember, this is for a group of people corporately to experience according to the doe of the dawn. That would have been a tune, most likely, some sort of musical direction there. Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But... I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat And be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. May this become the word of God for the people of God. And may this become the kind of words that resonate and echo out of us, even as this psalm sets for us amidst the worst possible suffering. Last week, we walked through the first two-thirds of this particular book, focusing, or this particular chapter, focusing mostly on the caption at the very beginning, quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 27 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We kind of saw that as like the entrance to the rest of the psalm. And so there's two things going on there. And the second one we'll spend our time in the last two-thirds of this particular chapter digging through. The first one is this, is, is that Jesus sets a model for us. This is a model prayer. This is meant to be an example 
that we're to follow. And other psalms are more didactic in nature. They teach a lesson, right? Think of, think of songs that, that maybe like that teach you something. Think the ABCs, right? You sing them, you memorize them, but the purpose of them is to, to by, by means of, of repetition, rhythm, and a pattern, and notes, and music to, to begin to kind of ingrain them in you. So that's like Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1, the first psalm, right? It, it's more didactic. It isn't necessarily a song of, uh, that comes from the first person, but it's almost like a declaration, a hymn, if you will, that we would probably sing. It says, so blessed is the one who, who does not do some things. He, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or even sit in the seat of scoffers, right? Blessing isn't necessarily in what you do, but according to Psalm 1, it's what you don't do, what you abstain from doing. Blessed is the person who doesn't walk, doesn't stand, doesn't even sit. What does the person do then? It says that he delights in the law of the Lord, just like Psalm 19. And that's radical. People are like, you like it when people tell you what to do? Oh, we love it. We love it when God, like a good father, tells us what to do and says, this is the way I want you to go. We yearn for that. He delights in the law of the Lord, and upon it he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of flowing water, so that his leaf never withers, it bears fruit in and out of season. But the wicked are not so. They're like shaft blown away in the wind. So you see, that's more of a didactic psalm. It's more of like a, a, a lesson. It just kind of teaches you a little bit about what blessing is. But this is different. This isn't a didactic psalm. This is a, this is a deeply personal poem. This is a deeply personal reflection that David cries out in pain. But he cries out with a few things that seem strange, and they make us wonder what David was talking about. And so the first thing we see is that we, we see a model for G, that, that Jesus gives us when he's on the cross looking at the people. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's meant to teach us. This is how we pray. We quote the words of God back to him. We, we have the Psalms deeply rooted. Remember, we, the blessing comes from delighting in the word of God, delighting, meditating upon it day and night. So that even in stress, even, even if all of our friends betrayed us like Jesus on the cross, we would cry out, the words of God back to God. But the second thing that this example gives us is that not only is he literally quoting the psalm, but he's alluding to something else in the psalm. We saw last week, he's quoting directly the psalm that gives us a picture, but he's also alluding to the rest of the psalm. It'd be like if I, if I just said, you know, I, I don't know, like, oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave, right? Part of you would be like, oh, he's quoting a song. But there's a sense in which you'd be alluding to the rest. You'd be, you'd be alluding to a sense of patriotism, alluding to a history that we share as Americans of, of like our, our, our national anthem isn't even about our nation. It's about a, it's about a flag that lasted a battle, right? This, and so even then, like alluding to it might, might stir up all sorts of things, might conjure up all sorts of thoughts and all sorts of different connotations that come with that song. Just alluding to it. And that's the second thing we see here in the Jesus does. So the three sections of the psalm, he starts by declaring a lament. This is what's going on. This is what I'm unhappy about. The second thing, he begins to kind of pray directly to God, saying in detail how awful things are. And then the third thing we see here is that he begins to declare what he will do when God delivers. And this means some powerful things for us. We see in this very song, this psalm together, the glory and suffering of Jesus side by side. In fact, it seems that one leads to another. The cry of dereliction that begins the psalm actually leads to the prayer and turning to God that spurs on this person 
to draw the nations into crying out to God. And it sets the stage for us to understand who Jesus is as he even, remember, quotes the song and alludes to something about what's going on on the cross. And it shouldn't shock us then that we see both suffering of Christ and the glory to follow here. Some of the first, the church fathers even referred to Psalm 22 as like the, the Psalm of the cross. Other, it was one, different, one, uh, one or two different uh, church fathers that referred to this as like the fifth gospel as it summarizes what it is that Jesus has accomplished. And Jesus was alluding to all these things. So last week we saw that this is a powerful critique to two different perspectives about suffering. And we saw this last week. There's, there's, there we have glory and suffering side by side. And our temptation on a regular basis is to find our identity in one or the other, either the victory and the glory or in the suffering and victimhood. And Jesus cries out, to God, even though he doesn't sense his presence. And so does David. And we're meant to call to God the same way. And this creates a stunning critique that we saw last week. So there's, you probably fall into two different categories, and this particular psalm offers a third way and critiques both of those. The first one is this. If you're this person, if you, if you love glory, you love victory, but you don't like the suffering that goes along, if you were to be honest, you're not okay unless you're king. You're not okay unless you're in charge. And in the places you don't want to admit, you spend as much time and energy, as many dollars, as much effort as you can possibly muster to avoid suffering. You'll go so far out of your way to avoid suffering. And this offers a painful and powerful critique, doesn't it? We don't avoid suffering. We identify with it. I want to remind you of this as often as I possibly can. The symbol of our movement, the symbol of Christianity, is a cross, a method of torture. The symbol of our movement was a thing that's now so grotesque, no one does it anymore. It was this method of torture that drew out death as long as possible. It was invented by the Assyrians, perfected by the Romans to expose a person, and, and the whole goal was like, we're going to kill this person, but we're going to do it as slowly as publicly and as painfully as possible. Don't forget, that's the symbol of our movement. Bonhoeffer talked about this uh, in his life together. He says, look, if anyone ever makes, and he's very careful when he does this, or even not to do it, if anyone ever makes the sign of a cross but doesn't realize that he's being bid, to call, he's bid by Christ to come and die, he's actually accepting a cheaper form of grace that is no grace at all. So I want to push back, maybe... If you're not okay unless you're in charge, if, 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 if suffering causes you to have existential questions, if bad things happening to you throw you into a fit of depression, I want to push back on you. There's a healthy thing that's happening there, and God is allowing the God of comfort, our God is allowing your idol of comfort, approval, and acceptance, and control to be destroyed. And this psalm offers a pretty painful critique, doesn't it? It says the word of God recited by the congregation, the people of God, the choir, if you will, is a word of suffering. And we don't avoid suffering. In fact, we embrace it. But on the other side of the spectrum, you'll see the second critique, as we saw last week, is for the people who maybe only idolize suffering. Now, this is powerful for us. We live in a day and age, I could go on and on about this, but like we live since 1988, or excuse me, 1989, in the age of intersectionality. 
which has inadvertently incentivized suffering to where now the more types of suffering you can identify with, the more voice and more control and influence you have. And there's an incentivization of suffering now. And if you want to be mad or outraged about something, you're, in a, you're living in a good time and place. There are lots of people that would love to give you lots of reasons to be angry. And we encourage you to have outrage. But there's a critique leveled against that as, way, uh, as well. And so if you're in this room, and maybe this would identify you, if you're really honest, you're not okay unless you're not okay. Let me put it this way. If you get annoyed about other people's drama, it's probably because you really like your drama better. If you ever call to, like, that person's so dramatic. How do you know that? How are you able to identify drama when you see it? Is it because you're fairly fluent in that language? Have you, met, have you been here? Like, you're not okay unless you're not okay. Like, when things are going well, you freak out. You're like, something's about to happen. Something bad is about to happen. You see this, I mean, like, in, in the most pathological sense, whenever you use weakness or sickness or, or any sort of malady or insor- any sort of obstacle or oppression as a means of gaining identity and attention, this is you. But there's a stunning critique here. Not only is our identity not in only avoiding suffering, but neither is our identity in only identifying with suffering. If you find yourself as the perpetual victim, there's a stunning critique here, isn't it? You don't stay there. The the cry out to God in the beginning leads to a declaration, a public declaration of God's victory that will be celebrated by the nations. And the suffering that it's experienced in the first of the psalm isn't an excuse to isolate yourself from people. It is the impetus, it is the motivation, it is the launch pad to the nations for the glory of the coming king. So there's a critique that'll hit you in one of two ways, I think. Whether you idolize your own control or idolize the identity you get from being a victim, we we exalt neither. We find them to actually work together. We don't think the winner or the loser are particularly special. We think that Jesus became the loser to demonstrate to us what a real winner looks like. And you see that all here in the 22nd Psalm. So let me walk through three different things, three different observations I want to make. And I'm going to point through, especially um, here for the next few minutes, kind of the words. There's some things here that, that maybe aren't common to our vernacular. You probably don't use these words, like potsherd. I don't use that word very often. I mean, I sometimes pull it out, but I don't. So, so there's a few things. He says, my God, he's crying out. We saw this last week. He's, he's crying out to God in the first eight to ten verses. And then he, there's a transi- transition that takes place from the first to about the 22nd verse. verse. It starts in just a cry out to God, but then there's just like this ray of hope. He says, yet you are holy. In spite of my pain, in spite of what I've been through, you are still holy. So we don't minimize suffering or sin but instead we cry out to God in it. And there's a a, a pattern here that happens. So let's walk through it. It says, you are holy, you're still to be praised. Even though my life's terrible, you're still to be praised. Because remember, you, the people that came before me, my ancestors trusted in you, you delivered them. But then he does something. Well, we'll just kind of walk through. He says in verse six, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Notice here, like he doesn't justify his standing. He, he, resists the, he resists, resists the temptation to justify his own standing and his own appearance. 
and the approval around. He, he just, he's honest about it. I'm a worm. I'm not even a human. Don't, don't even deserve the privileges of a human. I'm scorned by people. I'm despised by people. And the people who see me, they make fun of me. A couple things here. First and foremost, as a Christian, you need to be more and more comfortable with these words coming out of your mouth. Uh, we don't live in an age where it's now, like, gains you social capital to say you're a Christian. Um, and that shouldn't surprise you. Again, remember the cross? You don't get thrown on a cross for telling people what they want to hear. You don't get thrown on a cross for winning popularity contests. It's quite the opposite. So we ought to become comfortable with these things. But we as, as Christians, this is, this is what's powerful for us. And so if maybe if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here because I want you to hear maybe some correctives of, uh, of some things that some Christians may have told you or taught to you that, that aren't founded in the Bible, uh, but then let you see exactly what it is that we believe. We don't minimize suffering. We don't minimize sin. We don't hide it. We're the people that wear our sin publicly because we know that Jesus has died for it publicly. In fact, if, unless you really believe that Jesus has done this, most people who would call themselves Christians run into two different categories. They come either really good at hiding their sin, really good at hiding it, or really, really, really good at looking down on others when they feel like they're succeeding. We don't do either of those things. We, we, I'm a worm. I was reminded of this last week, and I, I remember this um, every time I get a chance to even preach at a funeral or attend a funeral. And I, 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 even when I preach a funeral, I try to push on this. We resist the temptation. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, we, we, 4 and 5, we don't, we don't not mourn. We weep. We saw this last week. We're good mourners. It's not that we don't weep. It's just that we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We have a profound connection with suffering. But that suffering is the fertile place where we find joy. And so we mourn, but we mourn differently as people who have hope. And so I push back against false hopes. One of the false hopes that happens in a funeral, I don't know if you've seen this, is, uh, is to put our hope in how good that person was. Oh, he was great, he was great, um, he's awesome. He was, uh, seen this? It's one of the false, there's a few false hopes, but this is one of them. And I made some notes, I don't know, I'm, I'm making like a this is what you should say at my funeral document. I don't know if I recommend that or not, but I'm doing it. Memento more, a reminder of death. Teach me to number my days that I might grow in wisdom, right? And, and one of the things I, I put, I, I, to you, whoever's preaching at my funeral is getting around, please, please do not try to distract from the fact that I'm a worm. Please don't, sit, I mean, I, I see this on a regular basis. I saw this in my own family, uh, especially like, so here's what, I may, I may be susceptible to like Alzheimer's or dementia. And in the last few days of my life, what's like the things in my brain that I wish wouldn't come out might start to come out. And that might, I might be exposed for the worm that I am. Please don't, don't justify it in any way. Please don't make light of it. Be like, that's, that's him. That's him. That's that guy. That's a worm. Please don't, well, he didn't mean to, or he was, he's not that bad a person. Please, he is that bad a person. You have no idea. You have no idea the depths that the sin in my own life has perpetrated and permeated the, my own soul. And I want you to know I'm a worm and not a man. I, wa I don't want you to justify or find a false hope in my own perfection. I want you to know what a marvelous thing to remember, as Paul tells Timothy. Christ died to save sinners. What kind of sinners? Uh, the worst of sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. So please resist the temptation to justify sin. Resist the temptation to distract from our lowly estate. Instead, isn't it amazing isn't it amazing that God would save that? <laughs> that guy. Did you hear what he was? Did you, have you seen him? What an amazing and wonderful and merciful God there must be to save a person, a worm like this. 
so I, I hope this is actually, this is a strange thing to think about, but we actually are more and more comfortable with these kinds of conversations. Christian hope is different. So one of the things you see here is, it, in kind of the language that's going on, is like, you see, we tell bad things to God, we tell good things to people. Did you catch the model of this prayer? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We tell bad things to God, and we tell good things to people. So the beginning of the psalm cries out to God in dereliction. I'm a worm. I don't deserve this. I'm, excuse me, I'm a worm. I do deserve this. I, 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 they're making fun of me. Things are awful. But then at the end of the psalm, as he walks through, he's like, but I'm going to declare how good our God is. Now, I point out this little pattern because I would argue in our own culture and our own kind of tendency is to do the opposite, isn't it? We do the opposite, don't we? Oh, when good things are happening, oh, we'll talk to God. How are you? I'm so blessed. I'm just so blessed. God, is, God has gifted me. Let's thank God, right? We sit down to eat. Let's, God, thank you for this food. When's the last time you thanked God for hunger? When's the la- I know this is going to sound crazy. I'm going to sound like a mystic for a minute. When's the last time you fasted so that that hunger and that stress on your body would remind you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See how we do the opposite? And when we're, when we're in stress, when we have trouble, where do we go? We go to our friends. I'm having a terrible day, you know, this, this thing and this thing, and we go to people. Notice what the psalm does. It does the exact opposite. It takes our stress, our trouble, our burdens. It casts them, those cares, upon him, it says, go to God. His shoulders are broad. He can handle this. We talked about this last couple of weeks. You complain to me, and I'm surprised and offended. You complain to God, and he can take it. Our God is not scared. He's not surprised by it. In fact, he can use those things, all things, in fact, to draw our hope and strength in him. So the model we see here is that we say the bad things. We tell the bad things to God, and we tell the good things to people. As you just if you think about like the life of our, our church, you know, if you think about this, what an amazing kind of model, right? We're the people that even in stress, we look to God for hope. And amongst people, we see opportunities to bear witness to that hope. C- can you imagine how radically different we would look in the world? Can you imagine how much we would be the people who stand out if this becomes the way we operate? I'm afraid we do the opposite, though. I'm afraid our tendency is that when things turn really sour, when bad things really happen, the first thing that goes is our relationship to our Creator. I've had a hard time. I haven't been reading the Bible. I haven't been praying. And I, I, want you sh- I want to show you here, like, just as Jesus' kingdom is upside down, so also are the way we see suffering, the way we see glory. We cry out to God, and then we declare his goodness to people. Not the opposite. We're not the people who hide from God and isolate ourselves from God and his people and then complain and and look to a relationship, look to a person, look to a family to live out all of our failures and find success. And that isn't what we do. We're the opposite. And Christian hope enables us to do this. Christian hope enables us to be very, very radically different. Let's keep going. He says, you took me from my womb. 
You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. I try to make sure I point this out every time this shows up in the scripture, but if you've ever wondered, like, why are Christians so adamantly against abortion, right? If you've ever wondered that, I want you to show that this is why. There's, because there's echoes of this throughout the entirety of the scripture, that evidently there's something, and this is, there's something theological actually happening in the womb of a woman that's about to give birth to a child. There, there's, there's theological implications of this. And so if you've ever wondered, like, why are these Christians all fired up about being against abortion? Like, why are they against a person's right to choose? I mean, in a, in a highly individualized society that worships individual autonomy and self-assertion over all other things, I know that sounds radical. That sounds crazy. A person's out of control of their own life. Why would, why would you be against somebody retaking control of their own life? Well, here's why. We, this is just why. I don't want to win you over to a political cause. I just want you to understand why Christians tend to say what they do. Every time we see this happening, every time we see birth, there's a theological implication to it. That's why. This is, all, this is the reason why. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. There's, like, there's a direct relationship. There's a connection here. something going on here that we can't see or understand, but that's what's going on. He says, be not far from me. And then he says in verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Side note, I don't know if you know what the bulls of Bashan are. I mean, again, I don't use that word often either. But picture just uh, an animal that's unruly and out of control. Right, the way I, I would kind of picture this is like uh, all the things that people do to figure out like what they do now. Um, how many animals did they strap themselves to before they realized like bull riding was a thing, Right. They're like, let's jump on that one. This, you, this one, if you jump on it, it will, like, you can put a saddle on it, and you can ride it around in and out of town. It's really great. You jump on this one, it wants to kill you, right? So that's, that's what he's saying. It's like there's, there's certain animals that are domesticated, and there are certain ones that really aren't, and they never really are. And you have to, like, modify them physically in order to get there, okay? And so, like, he, here's, here's what we see. This is, this is that picture. There's a, an unruliness. The people who are out of control or bloodthirsty are after me. It says the strong bulls of Bashan. This would have just been a region known for having bulls, okay? So this, is, this means nothing to us. The best example I can give to you is uh, Pamplona, all right? So if, if I said, like, the bulls of Pamplona, you ought to picture a bunch of angry bulls running down the street and silly people running in front of them. That's, that's the picture here. The angry bulls of Pamplona would probably be a, more, a better modern articulation of this. People out of control, or excuse me, bulls out of control have their mouths wide open. So this, the, the, the picture here is that these bulls are not only surrounding and, and vicious, but they're going to eat, eat this person, or they're going to devour you like a lion. So they're crazy bulls who apparently want to eat you. I mean, this, this, is, this is how deep of distress this person's in. He says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. And my heart, I love these words. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. My heart's like wax. It just melts. Not like goo-goo-ga-ga melt. Like melt because verse 15, the strength is dried up like a pot sherd. That word sherd is, we would use probably the word shard, a piece, but just a remnant, a shattered pot. We don't use ceramics as much anymore, but think of like a busted piece of glass. He's worthless. He's just fall into pieces. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You get the picture of dehydration. You lay me in the dust of death. You get the picture of, of like someone being buried. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Anytime dogs show up in the Old Testament, I have to correct you on this one. Uh, you can't think of your dog, like your baby, your 
I know dogs are family, all that good stuff. Uh, not in the Old Testament, okay? Dogs are, uh, remember how their ancestors survived. They ate their own you-know-what, right? Their dogs are able to, to survive because they have bacteria in their stomach like vultures, and they can eat things that are crazy um, that allow them to survive awful times. Remember that next time uh, your little pooch kisses you in the face. And so the Old Testament doesn't talk about dogs like you and I talk about dogs. It talks about dogs as like ravenous scavengers who are willing to eat the dead. They feed on the dead. And they're people who are trying to apparently take advantage of this weakness. Verse 16, it says at the end of it, they pierced my hands and my feet. And we're meant to picture here, we're meant to picture here the words of Jesus calling out in pain, and then the story of Matthew 27 of a mauling, a damage that comes to the hand and the feet. Literally, like a lion, my hands and my feet. They've been mauled, they've been destroyed. He says, I can count all my bones. You get this picture of famine and hunger, right? Picture someone who hasn't been able to eat in so long that you can see all of their rib cage, you can see all of their body. They stare and they gloat over me and my enemies. It says, they divide my garments among them. And the gospel writers are make, make sure to mention that this actually happened when Jesus died. The man of sorrows who had no property, who had no will and testament to pass on his fortune to the next generation, he simply was left with what he was wearing, and even what he was wearing was raffled off to some of the people who had played a role in killing him. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. You see something powerful here. It turns in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. So get this. Things are as bad as they could possibly be. Picture of famine, drought, hunger, starvation, death is on the doorstep, and then what happens in 22? Yet I will declare your name. How good you Oh God, why do you forsake me? I will declare your name to my brothers amongst the congregation. And something power ha powerful happens here. In sorrow, we resolve that in the congregation, we will praise God. Now, here's what I, I want you to know. I'm not talking about optimism. I'm not talking about optimism. In fact, I'm talking about something quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. I won't quote uh, one of our favorite authors, Tim Keller, puts it this way. He says, Christians are fiercely realistic. They're joyfully pessimistic. Because Christians have a, have a, 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 a broad and vivid view of God, we have a realistic view of reality. In fact, the Christian hope enables us to be joyful even when we can be realistic or pessimistic about life. Christians have a hope that enables them to... Not deny how much life really stinks. We're the people that have the ability to be fiercely realistic, more than anyone else, because our hope is not grounded in our present reality. Our hope is in what Christ has accomplished for us and secured for us in eternity. We don't try to build a kingdom here on this earth. We recognize Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, and we declare and bring this kingdom here. We don't one day get up and go to the kingdom or try to create a kingdom of our own. This kingdom is, is infiltrating the way that things are. So we are realistic when things don't look like Christ's kingdom. We're not afraid to say, that's not good, that's not pretty. We have a clear sight of Christ's magnificence such that we are realistic about how awful things really are. 
So if you're a denier, if you're a minimizer, if you, oh, things are going to be okay. Okay, maybe. I pre- maybe you're a Barnabas and an encourager. I appreciate that. But make sure that your encouragement isn't rooted in that things aren't that bad. Uh, they are that bad. They're, all, they're, they're so bad, Jesus had to die to take the place of all this. They're so bad that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to remove all the suffering. They're that bad. It costs the Son of God his life. They're that bad. But we don't minimize it, but instead we're realistic about it. And we're explicit about how tough life really is. And we're not shocked when it's difficult because we're able to have a hope in spite of it. Don't miss it. Don't don't miss side by side the declaration of God's goodness and the cry of dereliction that begins the psalm. They're in the same psalm. Some people are like, well, you know, things are bad and things are, well, that's Old Testament. We're New Testament. We're always happy and joyful. Dude, maybe, but like in the same psalm, you see the, the, the dereliction, the abandonment that's felt by God. And yet the victory that we know that God is king, his kingship, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He is the one who rules over the nations. So we're quick to point out when nations are not being ruled by Christ. If you're like, hey, you know, you know, this kingdom or this, this president or this, they, you know, they're not doing well. And we don't, we're not defensive. We don't come up with a false form of patriotism. We go, you're right, that's awful. I can't wait when Jesus, who's really king, comes back and takes back over. We're fiercely realistic. We're okay with how difficult things are because in our sorrow, we resolve that in the congregation, we will praise God. Let me push on this just a little bit. Verse 22, I'll tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. So it's really weird. In verse 22, he was crying out to God how awful things are, and then he turns and he becomes a worship leader. Did you catch this? All of you who fear the Lord, praise him. Glorify him. Stand up. All of you who are called by his name, you're of his people, in his family. All of you who call God Father, your offspring of his covenant friend. All of, in Christ, we glorify even in the midst of awful suffering. I want to push on this a little bit. Um, Our tendency when things go bad is we go AWOL from other Christians. I shared with you a few weeks ago, uh, one one article put it this way, we we currently live in the golden age of bailing. Like if you want to just go AWOL and bail on people and not meet any commitments, we don't don't have that anymore. Like, hey, I'll see you at 10. uh, And then like, that, that's, the only, that's the only thing. You, you, you see each other at 10. Now we have the ability, oh man, I'm five minutes late. Oh man, I'm not going to make it. Oh man, I got to go comb my hair. I'm not gonna, I mean, like, we, we have so many opportunities to bail on people. And that's our tendency. We've utilized that kind of technology for this pr- specific purpose. But notice, I, notice this is radical and countercultural. Where does he begin to experience joy? In the congregation. He begins to experience joy in the congregation, in, the, in our sorrow. In the midst of our sorrow, we resolve that in the congregation, we will praise God. There's two things here. There's a congregation, and then there's praise. The first thing, con- congregation. Some of you think that in suffering, you just want to hide from people of faith. You want to hide from God. And we have lots of opportunities to just disappear, and people like that doesn't shock anyone anymore. There was, I think there, there was a day where, hey, we haven't heard from that person. I think they're dead. Now it's just, well, I haven't heard from that person. They're, they're, that's normal. That isn't, no, one's, no one's wondering whether or not that person's okay. We just assume you're fine. You're just doing what everyone else does, and you just fell off the place, face of the planet don't want to talk to anybody else. 
And I know what you'll think. Jonathan, you don't know how difficult things are. I can't cope. I don't want to see your face or other people's face. But I want to encourage you, your joy will not come from wallowing in your sorrow. It will come from praising Jesus with the rest of us. And I know for some of you this morning, like sitting here right now, as someone declares good news to you, this is the last place you want to be. I know that. I feel that. I understand that. I can't imagine what you've been through, but I want to tell you, you've made one of the most powerful steps the psalmist gives us. I'm going to go hang out with people that are going to point my eyes away from my own sorrow. I'm going to have people point my eyes away from the sorrows of my own life. I'm going to have people point my eyes away from the failure of my own kingdom, and I'm going to surround myself with people who are going to point my eyes to be lifted up to the helper, to the hills from which he comes, and they're going to point my eyes to a new kingdom, a greater king. I'm going to point my eyes to victory. He's going to point, I'm going to surround myself with people who are going to point my eyes and my attention away from all of the awful things that have happened to me. They're going to point my eyes away from trying to save or justify myself. And they're going to look to the risen king and, says, and say, in his name, in his name I will revel. In his name we will prosper. So here's what I encourage you. Maybe if that's not you, maybe you know someone that's this. Um, just This is why we do this. This is why we get together. And so the days are coming. Maybe this doesn't apply to you. The days are coming of suffering, and maybe that's not you now, but it's happening. And I want to tell you, the worst possible thing you can do is to isolate yourself from the people who love you enough to tell you that your suffering isn't the most important thing, that Christ's is. Surround yourself with people you won't want to, I promise you. They'll seem, they'll seem like superficially happy. I, know, I apologize for that. You're like, why are you always so happy? It's annoying. I got it. I've been there. But I want you to just prepare yourself for when that sorrow comes, when that, when that phone call hits you on a Tuesday afternoon and wrecks your entire world, your temptation will be to isolate and separate yourself from the congregation of people called by God's name. But what we find here is that joy actually comes from surrounding yourself with them. You don't avoid them. You know, man, I, you, know, you know, if I stay home and just wallow in this sorrow, I'll be destroyed. I'll dissolve away into nothing. Boy, I need people around me to point myself away from my own sorrow. Boy, I need people to point me away from my own sin and failure. I need people to point me to the resurrected Christ who gets the last word and speaks it over his people. The second thing is praise. I've said this before. We saw this in the book of Jonah. But in sorrow, he responds in praise. Now remember, sometimes praising God is crying out to him and saying, God, I don't like this. I hate that. Why is the world this way? God, why have you done this? That in and of itself is a form of praise. It's pointing to God. But in the sorrow, we tend to not want to praise. And you'll say a, a sentence like this. We saw this in Jonah. You'll say something like this. Okay, Jonathan, I'll praise God if, and then fill in the blank. And I, I want you to see that for what it is. Okay? I'll read it right to left. So you I'll praise God if. Here's, here's the problem. On the other side of that if is your actual God. You say, I'll praise God just so long as if, or, and then fill in the blank. And on the other side of your conditions is your actual God. That's the thing you actually worship. I'll praise God as soon as my suffering goes away. Friend, your God is comfort. 
I'll praise God as soon as my drama goes away. You're, I don't know, you're, 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 your God is some sort of earthly peace. It's your kingdom. I'll, I'll praise God if this, and friend, on the other side of the if, I want to warn you, is your actual God the thing you really love? And if you had it back, you might praise. Friend, it's actually good news when that thing is ripped from you, when that thing fails. And when you find, people say this on the, you know, oh, everything's, you know, falling apart and all I have left is Jesus. And I'm like, Haha, that's all you ever had. You, you were deceived to think that you had any other hope. And God is merciful enough to allow those things you're currently hoping in to be ripped from your hands so that you're like, oh, this is what I had all along. We saw this in Ecclesiastes. There's a, there's a kind of sorrow we're invited to here that, that leads to a greater joy. So I warn you, like, joy comes when we, this is why we, this is why we sing. I know, it seems weird to sing. It's, it's so weird. It seems crazy, but that's because we believe this lie that there are singers and non-singers. I don't know who, I don't know who perpet, you know, perpetuated this. I don't know who's, like, you know, perpetrated this lie, but, like, there's singers and then there's not singers. And the singers are up here on the stage and the non-singers are out there. That is not true. The entirety of the book tells us this, this is a declaration of people. There's no such thing as a non-singer, all people sing. So I know this feels weird to sing, but that's because someone convinced you that there's no such thing as a singer. Friend, if you decide that you will not sing, the New Testament tells us that the rocks will mock you and they'll say, fine, if you won't cry out to God, I will cry out to God. And it's this, this, it's this strange insult to those of us who think there are singers and non-singers. Oh, you think there's not singers? Let a dumb, lifeless rock get louder than you. And that's, that's the picture here. And so I'm going to push back, and you're like, well, I don't, I don't like singing because it feels weird. I know that's because you believe the myth. God, God has created us to long and to worship and to have adoration and to have affections for things. And he just happens to be the greatest thing. He just happens to be the thing worthy of our affections. And so the end of this chapter, we find that the calling and the mission of the people of God, as well as the hope of the entire nations, all of the nations, find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The gospel writers wanted you to know that all the things that happen in this psalm, suffering and then the glorious victory of the king, are meant to whet your appetite for something else. Are you unsinkable? Do you have an unsinkable joy that even overshadows our realistic sense of the world? It's fierce joy that even overshadows our pessimism? Do you have that kind of stubborn buoyancy, that stubbornness that can't be sunk? I think you might need it. Do you feel that? Do you, do you feel that? You look at your life and go, I need that kind of joy. I need that kind of buoyancy. If you haven't felt the need for it, I want to warn you, it's on the way. You just haven't experienced much of life yet. It's on the way. But for those of us who yearn for that kind of joy, that unsinkable joy, Psalm 22 whets our appetite for our satisfaction in Christ. And it sends us and propels us. I don't know if you caught the last third of this. It's all about the declaration to the nations, the families, the ends of the earth. This joy that overcomes even the worst possible sorrow will benefit all the nations. Friend, you've been delivered from this sorrow to an identity marked by joy in Christ. He has taken your place such that now we have news that's too good to keep a secret. 
the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth are going to praise this God. How about we begin now? How about we resolve to be the people that amidst sorrow and suffering, we don't minimize it. We say it, it's awful. I'm a worm and this is awful. We don't minimize it, but we see it as the fertile soil through which something dead comes back to life, comes back to new life and multiplies to the ends of the earth. How about we resolve to live this out and do this now? Verse 28 puts it this way. The kingship belongs to the Lord, and he is the one who rules over the nations. Friend, we have a king, a good and merciful king. He doesn't send people to die in his place. He runs in front of the army, and he dies in front of his army to save his people. He dies in their place. This is the king that's coming. This is the kind of king that propels us to a mission in the world, but also grants us hope, so great a hope that satisfies the nations for eternity. Let's pray and thank God for that king. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your mercy. Uh, we recognize we do not deserve it. We could never earn it. And yet, we gather together here to declare a mystery that we have received it. That by faith we receive this gift granted to us in Christ. If our tendency then this morning is to simply find our hope and satisfaction by avoiding suffering, would you begin to show us a crucified king, a king that was willing to take suffering to demonstrate that even the worst of circumstances won't hold down God's will in the world? Even betrayal and abandonment won't stop God from fulfilling his purposes. If, if we try to find our hope apart from suffering, would you begin to show us? That's, that's to look for hope apart from God. May we confess that, turn from that, and trust in a risen Savior. If there's some of us, maybe we find our identity in victory. We, we want to be the king. We don't want we, we don't, we don't, we don't to be subject to you. We don't want to be subject to anything. Would you begin to show us that, that, that robs us of the joy, that robs us of identifying with our suffering king? Maybe there's even some in this room, maybe they find their identity in that suffering. Maybe they're, they just live in a state of perpetual victimhood. Would, even now, would, you, would they hear the words that we've been declaring? That's not who you are. You're an adopted, chosen child of God. Lift your head, lift your eyes to the king. The suffering doesn't get the last word. God, help us then to be propelled and to declare this good news amongst one another as a congregation in the times where we're most tempted to avoid people who love you and avoid you altogether. Help us to hear that as a call to praise and a call to thanksgiving and the impetus and slingshot to mission for the nations to celebrate this glory and praise with us. Begin this in us. Stir thus this in us. We pray. We can't do it apart from you. We need your help. Let us look to you. Let us trust in you. Let us lift our eyes to the finished work of your son such that we would experience the joy that we see here. In Jesus' name, we ask this and expect it to be answered fruitfully. Amen.